Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Moshai, Swami Sri Teshwar, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Saints of all religions, Friend and Guide Swami Kriyananda, we bow to you all, we invite your presence with us this morning. Help us to feel thy infinite love. Be with us now. Om. Peace. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, may we serve you all our days, ever rejoice to sing your praise, as we together your wisdom seek, charge us with truth whene'er we speak. Lord, may we ever know your will, come to us when our hearts are still. As we your guidance with joy receive, may we as one your bliss achieve. As we your guidance with joy receive, may we as one your bliss
Thank you for that beautiful music. And I know we all want to say thank you again to the musicians and the uh, singers and the music ministry for that amazing concert last night. It was extraordinary. Thank you so much. Well, I'd like to introduce our panel for this morning. We have a panel of Naya Swamis. My name is Anandi, and I and Ananta uh, reside here at Ananda Village. Uh, Nayaswami Asha and her husband direct the Ananda Colony in Palo Alto. And Nayaswami Narayan and his wife direct the community in Los Angeles. Well, this morning we have the wonderful topic to talk about of discipleship, the path of inner joy. Jyotish started our week by giving us the understanding that God is joy, that we are made of that joy, that we are actually on our way home. We're not trying to find, in looking for happiness, we're not trying to find something that we aren't, but something that we are already. And I was thinking about Yogananda's poem, Samadhi. After Yogananda had his first experience of union with God, he wrote this amazing poem to describe what union with, with God was like. And every single line of the poem is amazingly vivid and profound and thrilling. But the last two lines of the poem really bear special meditation on in terms of our topic today. The last two po- lines of the poem, he's describing his state when he realized his oneness with God And he said, a tiny bubble of laughter. I am become the sea of mirth itself. So he's talking about the soul as a tiny bubble of laughter. Doesn't that make you feel good? (laughs) It's not just bliss in there. We're having a good time. And, And then he describes God again. Not just as bliss, but mirth. I looked up mirth this morning. Mirth means merriment. Mirth means amusement tinged with laughter. God is having a good time all the time. And that's where we're going. Happiness is the stepping stone to bliss, to mirth, to being a bubble of laughter. Yesterday... um, Atman started the class by giving us our schematic, starting with the ego, going to God. And I want to build on that a little bit, because we start with the ego, which is the soul, 
identified with the body and identified with all its desires, all its needs and attachments. And by definition, that ego will never find happiness, pure and lasting happiness. No matter how much pizza or ice cream we eat, it can never last long enough. On the other hand, the soul is always in happiness, joy, mirth, bliss. And so we're trying to move ourselves from ego awareness to soul awareness, to God awareness. But we can't do it through the ego alone. The ego cannot transcend itself to find that soul awareness. It needs help. So the ego may try to move itself along. But what it can hope for most of all is that it gets smart enough to say, I'm really tired of the roller coaster. I really don't want to go up and down again and again. I really want something eternal. I want truth. I want God. And I will do anything to get it. And when the soul comes to that point, and even if it's not totally verbalize that clearly. But in my case, I can say it was much more of a just a, ah, sort of a, a blind reaching upward, not even knowing what it was I wanted, but knowing that I had to find it. Whatever form it takes, when we put out that call, then a guru comes into our lives What is that guru and what is this disciple-guru relationship? In a ceremony that we had on Master's birthday some years ago, Swamiji sent a message to us and he said, you have to remember the guru is you. The guru is you. He's not out there. He's not then. He's now He's the very highest octave of your being. He's the part of you that is connecting you to God. He's the voice inside of you that leads you to God, that is one with God. And there are a lot of other voices in there. There are a lot of other voices in there, and they all have a pretty compelling shtick. (laughs) You know, the... I think you better back up a little bit. I think you're getting fanatic. You know, you, you know, you're getting a little too deep into this. You better balance your life with a little bit of movies and pizza and so forth. Um, or look at how you've been. You're nowhere worthy to follow a spiritual path. You've got so much personal stuff to deal with. You better get on it. Or there's so many different voices in there. How are you going to make a living? So they're all pretty strong, and they're all part of you. They are other octaves of your being, and they're speaking strongly. So to, on our own, discover that part of us that is the guru, again, it's impossible. And that's why we have the great ones, the souls who have been like us, They've been just as confused and deluded, and they've worked their way to oneness with God, to freedom from everything, to pure bliss, freedom from karma. 
And some of them come back at God's behest to help us find our way back to God. They don't have any other agenda except helping us. When I first moved to Ananda, I came in a little uh, Volkswagen bug. And what I discovered about the Volkswagen bug, and I'm not sure if I can do a good job of this, but I'm going to try, is that when you're on a highway in a very light car like that and a very big truck goes past you, you have to hold onto the steering wheel very tight because that enormous truck has a slipstream. And what that means, and this is the part I'm a little, <laughs> hope I can get this right, is it, it pulls, my experience is basically, it pulls you in toward itself. But it also creates a pathway behind it, which I was not about to take in that situation, that is easier. If you can stay just as uh, you see the geese flying or you see the bicycle race, the guy wheel sucking the other guy, staying in close so the other one can break the wind for him. That enormous power, let's think about a huge truck, creates this pull behind it. And that's what the image I was thinking of this morning, of the guru just leading us to God. He will take us there. Now, we all have images of what that's going to look like when we come on the spiritual path. We're going to have very deep meditations. We're going to have a lot of bliss. We're probably going to have good health, fairly good financial situation, lots of love in in our lives and so on. We have a picture And that's not necessarily the same picture that the guru has. (laughs) Because he's looking at us in a very different way. He's saying, okay, I can see the whole thing. I can see where they've been. I can see what they need to know in order to become free. And this life is not going to look so good. It's not going to be all that fun, but it's what they have to do to find God. And I'm going to work with them until they do that. So yesterday, Padma gave us the true statement that we can't stand still on the spiritual path. We're either moving forward or we're moving backward. But you know, most of us have been disciples for a long time. And I don't know if you've noticed, it's not that easy to tell if you're moving forward or backward. That's, <laughs> as P.G. Woodhouse would say, that's the Pipovich. It's just not that easy to tell. I had a friend, I have a friend at Ananda, um, and I'm going to tell a story of what he went through. I'll call him Bob. He uh, had a nice job at Ananda where he was able to help many people. And he loved the job, and he was having wonderful meditations. He was in a very deep place. He was filled with love for God. He felt very close, and at the same time, he felt, I can't get past where I am. I I just want you, God, so much, and I I don't know how to get to the next level. And he was praying at this in this way, and the phone rang one night, and it was Swami Kriyananda. Swami Kriyananda said, I have a job for you. And this was an extremely challenging job. It, It sort of blew his mind about what would be involved to accomplish it. And the only thing he had going for him is he said, I just want to do it for you, Swami. Whatever it is, I'll do it. I'll do it for God and Guru. And he took the job, and he worked as hard as he possibly could for three years. It brought up all kinds of issues, uh, 
insecurity, security, all those very profound uh, issues came up for him. He had a lot of wins. He had a lot of losses. He finished his part of the job after about three years, and he had no idea if it if, if he'd gone forward or backward, if it was a success or was a failure, he actually went into a period of confusion for a couple of years, not really knowing what had happened. And he was talking to Swami sometime later. And Swami said to him, before you took this job, you were in an eddy. You were caught. You couldn't move forward. Who could know? Was he moving forward in that job? Did he succeed? It didn't matter. All that mattered was that he was able to give himself to it to the best of his ability. How to judge how he did, we can't judge. He can't know. All he can know is we do our best, and that's what God wants from us. I had an interesting experience that I want to share. It's curious. It happened about 10 years ago, but it came back to my memory earlier this year, and it provided some interesting insight. About 10 years ago, uh, we were in this phase where we were doing something called Evenings of Enchantment. Beautiful evenings where everybody dressed up and we had an elegant dinner of maybe five courses. And in between each course, uh, people would perform Swamiji's music or something from one of his plays. And it really was an enchanted atmosphere and evening. Well, and this one evening, for some bizarre reason, I decided I wanted to be a waitress instead of attending. And I collared Bharat into being a waiter with me. And they assigned us to Swamiji's table, which was a huge honor, I thought. And Swami came in. <laughs> well, it was, but it's only the beginning. <laughs> um, Swamiji came into that party, and he was radiant. He was wearing the most magnificent, pristine, beautiful, white silk Indian shirt. And it it was like his light just glowed right through it. And he, I think it must have been a special gift. It looked very special. And he sat down and I got ready to serve his table. And the first course was a very liquidy (laughs) soup, colored red, And the first, right off the bat, the first thing I did was serve that soup and slosh a good amount of it right into Swami's beautiful shirt. And I mean, my heart practically stopped. And so I went running off to get a a towel with cold, wet with cold water. And meanwhile, Maria started, you know, taking her paper napkin and putting water on it and trying to deal with the wreckage and I come <laughs> I came back with my with my towel and I was working on it. I couldn't see much but of course it was wet. We won't even talk about that aspect of the hot and the wet. But anyway, I was just I was horrified and I, I tried to dematerialize actually <laughs> on the spot. Didn't work. It's not actually really even a good quality for a waitress to dematerialize because you're supposed to be serving. And and so I wasn't seen around the table more than the absolute minimum because I was so, felt so bad. And after the evening, of course, I apologized to Swami. He was totally, totally gracious. The next day, he came in. He was wearing the exact same shirt. It looked exactly the same. It looked pristine. He called me over. He said, look, 
I, I couldn't believe it. I said, Swami, you're like Teflon. Nothing, <laughs> nothing sticks. Now, that evening it came back to me earlier this year pretty much as a, as a train wreckage, actually, <laughs> a, um, a bad experience on, on many levels, of not the highlight of my spiritual life. But an interesting thing that I noticed from it was this. Because that whole experience had awakened me very much, I was very awake, I remembered that image of Swami in that shirt very, very vividly. It was very strong for me. And so I began to meditate on that image. And it was like meditating on light imbued with the vibrations of my teacher, with his love and his kindness and his wonderfulness. So it was a double image for meditation, light plus all this other vibration of Swami. And I meditated on it for a while. And I had very, it was a very strong and clarifying image. And then something happened one day. I, sometime after, I wasn't thinking of it that much. I noticed that I had a physical problem. I won't go into it. It wasn't a big deal. But I thought, I think I'm going to have to see a doctor about this. This is kind of a bummer. But what bothered me about it was I thought I could feel some dark thinking behind it. You know, it was my own dark thoughts that had brought it. I could feel that. But I remembered this image. And so I went into meditation that morning that I discovered it, and I just put my full concentration into that image of Swami as light. And the next day, that medical problem was gone. And I think that was a very important experience for me, and I hope an image that may stick for you, that really we don't know what's going on, dark, light. Uh, We do know where the light is, and we do have the capacity to point ourselves in that direction. And that's what we are trying to do as disciples. The masters are holding out for us a vibration of perfection and light, and we are trying to attune ourselves to it with the full, our full capacity. I'd like to tell one final story that you can find on the Expanding Light website. It's a beautiful blog written by one of our staff, Matt, about an experience he had in his early years at Ananda. Matt's been here now, I don't know, 30, 40 years, but this was after he'd been here about two years. And he was not able, he was having a a terrible time. He was not able to find a job that he liked. His sadhana was practically non-existent. And he had just had a relationship blow up in his face. And he was feeling pretty much in the basement, just about as low as he could get, confused, just everything was going wrong and he didn't see where it could go up. And he came to the Expanding Light to hear a talk given by Swami Kriyananda. And as Swami was talking, Matt was sitting there kind of reviewing the situation and coming to the point of saying, okay, Matt, close the door on the past, put one foot in front of the other, and just move forward. And he just kept putting his will and thought into this. Just put one foot in front of the other and just move forward, leave it behind you. He was just, the whole time, he was just, gearing himself up for a fresh beginning. And Swami finished his talk. Matt was sitting at the back of the room, a couple of seats in. He wasn't right on the aisle. He was a few seats in from the aisle. 
And Swami came walking down the aisle, walked past Matt, turned around, looked back at him, looked him straight in the eye, and he said, That's the spirit! <laughs> and then he, when he walked out. And Matt said at that point, everybody around him started patting him on the back. <laughs> you know, Matt's got the spirit. Go, Matt. And he was stupefied. He was going, how did he know? How did he know? But the truth is, God is always watching our heart. And whether whatever it looks like on the outside, whether it seems like it seemed to him he was moving backward, but inwardly he was moving forward. And the fact that life was moving him backward meant that he was moving forward with even more strength. So this, this is what we have to look at in our lives and look forward. Master said that the spiritual path involves two seemingly opposites. On the one hand, we have to have the will to succeed. We have to have the will to rise above our limitation. On the other hand, we have to offer our lives completely, trustingly, with full love and devotion into the hands of the guru. And that is our journey, and it doesn't get any better than that. Thank you. So I've lived in Los Angeles for a few years now and actually stumbled across some actors. In fact, I was with Arjuna in a light bulb store and he walked up to this woman and said, weren't you that woman in such and such? And she said, yes. And then she proceeded to buy her 60-watt bulb and, you know, went on her way. But having been there for a few years, I've actually picked up some acting exercises and I'm wondering if you're willing to try one with me. Yes? Okay, here's the exercise. We stand up. And you're being cast in a role. You're a new actor. You're in Los Angeles. And you are so excited. <laughs> but you have to win the part. And the guru's line is, how feel you and you're like, and ready, I am awake, and ready, I am awake, and ready. And he likes that, and he says, we have a new commercial, it's called uh, Raw Enthusiasm. And you chomp on it, and you go, I am positive, energetic, enthusiastic, I am positive, energetic, enthusiastic, I am positive, energetic, enthusiastic, fantastic. And they say, we've got a new Tarzan role for you. <laughs> I am master of my body. I am master of myself. I am master of my body. I am master of myself. Awake, rejoice, my body cells. Awake, rejoice, my body cells. Awake, rejoice, my body cells. And then rapping, be glad, my brain. Be wise and strong. Be glad, my brain. Be wise and strong. And awake, my sleeping children. Awake, awake, my sleeping children. Awake. And let's sit down and take the, this enthusiasm calmly inside. Close the eyes for a moment. And let's focus it at a still point between the eyebrows. Just taking a moment to feel Master's presence and Swamiji's presence with us. And since our homework this week was to increase our happiness 
Swamiji whispers a secret of happiness in our ear. The secret of happiness is the determination to be happy always, no matter the outer circumstances. The determination to be happy always and not wait for outer circumstances to change. Our topic this morning is discipleship, the path of inner joy. So I thought I would start by talking on my first path, which was dogma, the outer path of utter boredom. And I have a few experiences, more than a few, but a couple standout ritual uh, traumatic ones. Uh, The first being my first confession. So you're Roman Catholic, you grow up and you're supposed to do these things and your mother brings you to, to church and you were supposed to confess. The original trinity that I knew was sin, guilt, confession. Uh, so I needed some sins. Uh, fortunately, my father was a proficient uh, curse word artist, so I had that. And then also, I just went in there. And uh, I had taken some bubble gum from my brother, too. So... It was the old school kind of confession where they have the screen there and you just have to let it all out. And I didn't know if he could hear me or not, so I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> and I tried to say it clearly. And when I came out, my mother, her jaw was on the floor. She said, Philip, next time you confess, you must speak softer. The entire church heard your sins. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So that was my first one. And then shortly thereafter was my first communion, which this is not a joke. Uh, I dropped it. You know, I blame it on the priest. <laughs> now, it was just on the, it just happened. And then I, I picked it. I was like a Aborigine fisher with my bare hands. I just grabbed it from the floor and, and kept going. But I was thinking, where did my path of discipleship start? Where did I find at master? Where did this resonance of an inner joy and an inner true experience begin? And I wanted to share just a brief line from master's invocation to the guru. Our souls met after years of waiting. They trembled with an omnipresent thrill. We met here because we had met before. Haven't we all had that experience in some way or another where we've met Master, we've met Swamiji, and something stood still in our heart, in our soul, and we were rooted to the spot. I remember I used to work in New York City in finance, and I was desperate utterly desperate to find peace. And somewhere, somehow, I wanted to learn to meditate. I don't even know where that came from. And I was on a sales trip in a used bookstore in the Milwaukee airport, and I uttered mentally probably the most sincere prayer I ever have. And looking up, I just said, I need a good book 
you've got to send me a good book to read. And the next book I pulled off the shelf was Autobiography of a Yogi. And I saw a master's picture and I trembled. It's something in me, that picture stirred. But then I wanted to take that inspiration. You know, my father always said, this is where the rubber hits the road, son. And I wanted to hit the road. I wanted to roll up my sleeves. I just had this, I'd taken that raw enthusiasm vegetable and I was, this is it. And I would go into, you know, like the trading floor and this is it. But no one was really into it there. Uh, <laughs> So I started searching on the internet and I came across Ananda and I got the course in self-realization and it said, if you have any questions, call this number. And I did. And who did I talk to but Krishnadas who befriended me and I just had that personal connection with him. And then from there, I I learned that there was an Ananda center on the East Coast in Rhode Island and I met Larry, uh, now Om Prakash, Om Prakash and Prem Shanti. And these dear souls took me in. I, I felt like I had known them. We had met here because we had met before. And Jaya was there also. What I loved about these people when I met them was, you know, they didn't seem to talk about God at all. They didn't really, yes, they talked about the teaching somewhat, but it wasn't like they wore it on their sleeve. But, you know, it was, it was painted on their face. You could see this joy. And I, I knew they had something that I wanted. And so I, I asked myself, what? You know how Swamiji would say if you meet a few people, you can say that they're special. But when you see a whole group of people, it's what they're doing that makes them special. And so I continued to meet more and more people, and they continued to impress me on a deeper and deeper level. And I kept asking myself, what is it that they're doing? And then Swamiji came to Rhode Island and Dharma Devi gave me this picture this week. She said, look at this. She pulled out this old picture. And I, I just like that when I found autobiography, this picture, uh, it's when I first met Swami in Rhode Island. And I think since it's spiritual renewal week, you know how they do civil war reenactments? <laughs> why not do a, a, a discipleship reenactment? You know, go to your meditation room, light your candle, pull out the pictures, light the incense, and reenact what that moment was like when, you were, when your soul trembled. And in fact, I remember the conversation Swamiji and I were having. Believe it or not, we were talking about buffalo mozzarella. And I was really enthusiastic because I lived in Hoboken, New Jersey at the time, and it was right around the corner from a great deli, Italian deli. And to me, you know, they, they had this sign in there that encapsulated the spiritual path, so I wanted to share it with Swamiji. And I said, Swamiji, I, I, you know, I've read some of your books and how Master said to you, I said something and he kind of corrected me. I misquoted something Master said. You know, I just didn't know exactly what I was talking about. But I think he appreciated the enthusiasm. So anyway, I said, yeah, there's this Italian deli right where I live. And it says, the sign says, the taste of a good mozzarella is long remembered after price is forgotten. (laughs) 
I said, this is it. This encapsulates the whole path. And he just smiled and, and just said, I don't know if you thought I was bonkers or what, but, but that, what, what were these people doing? I just continued to, every person I met and everything that they shared with me, it was an invitation of inspiration. You know, it was like Swamiji's whole life was an invitation of inspiration. It was, you know, the Indian ragas, how they, they have a melody and they spontaneously, uh, cre- creatively expand upon that melody. Well, it's like his whole life was a raga of discipleship, a raga of love of the guru, of service to the guru. And everything, the music, I, I remember, you know, I grew up, I played a little bit of guitar, but I never thought I could sing. I didn't receive the most encouragement, you know, from my brother and people, you <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Stop, please. <laughs> so I had a little bit of that. And Om Prakash, Larry, in Rhode Island, I'll never forget this. He said, would you like to sing in the choir? And I was just sing. I can't sing. But, you know, everyone, that's one of the things that's unique about Ananda is the music, what we experienced last night. It's so deeply moving. And and when I came to, in fact, this is a special week for me too, because this was my first visit to the village, uh, Spiritual Renew Week, about 14 years ago or so, or whenever it was. And I remember Jeannie was leading a, a round Help me out here. Give me a light to light my way. Truth is the light, so wise men say. And we did this round over and over again. And I went back to New York and I was, you know, selling and walking on the streets of New York and I was singing that. I held on to that melody. Do not underestimate the, the, the power of this music to touch someone's heart. Because that's what, what Swamiji did. He, he touched our hearts. And now, as Master said, follow the living link. Where is that living link? I see him through all of you. You have touched my heart. When I, w- I used to you know, get up and put the suit and tie on, and uh, I remember I was listening. I don't know how it happened. I was just, it was like 6.30 in the morning. I'm listening to, I got Christ Lives, the oratorio. I happen to be listening to it while I'm putting my suit and tie on before journeying to work. And Swamiji was singing the Psalm of David. And something happened. That song just, it got into my heart. And I just had tears coming down my my cheeks. But it wasn't like an emotional uh, sobbing. It was like that uh, Divine Mother chant. Will that day come to me, Ma? When saying, Mother dear... My eyes will flow tears. It was just like, I was like, what? What, is, what did they put in the food out there? <laughs> Something got in my system. Um, but I found that the more that I opened, like the song the singer sang this morning, the more I opened to his love, the more blessed I was. The more I just made that invitation myself to invite 
Master and, and Swamiji's presence into my life, the more I was transformed and changed. And so there is... I wanted to share one other thought in that respect too was in regards to music. When I started listening to Swamiji's talks, there was something about his voice. I'm sure you've all had this experience. I remember being on an airplane and uh, Krishnadas sent me the companion talks to the Raja Yoga course and I just listened to them over and over and they're dynamite. If you haven't heard them, you should listen to them. But there was something about his voice. It was authentic. He was speaking from his own center. And then I came here and I met Jyotish and I met Devi and Asha and Ananta and Nalini and all of you. And all these people were speaking from the personal conviction born of their own personal experience. That's what I love about Ananda and about this path of discipleship is that it's not, it's not book learning. It's people rolling up their sleeves. And we have this, this camaraderie that's not a familiar warmth. You know, it's not a buck you up slap you on the back, good old college days. It's, as Master said, there's a distant closeness. You know, that's, that's the type of friendship that we share. There's something very deep. I, you know, I feel really close to Prakash. I feel like he would let me drive his tractor. Uh, we've never talked for over five minutes, I don't think, you know, in all the time that I've been here at Ananda. But I think if I really wanted to drive his tractor, he would, he would let me. Within reason. <laughs> So, one of the other aspects of when I was thinking about what, what were they doing? What were these disciples here? What made them special? It was seeing the highest in each other. Just like Jotish and Davy were speaking the other night, I think in the, the Q&A, making a conscious decision to see the highest in each other. And it doesn't mean that we become uh, ignorant and not tuned into reality, but you choose to tune into the highest reality that relating to each other as a soul. And Swamiji, of course, touched us in this way. Uh, In fact, when I received my spiritual name, Narayan, I didn't want a spiritual name. You know, I was like, I'm a... You know, it's not for me. And I wrote to Swamiji when I was in the monastery here with Nitai and Nabha, and I felt this call to go to India to, you know, just leave it all kind of thing. And he said, no, your place is, you know, here to serve at Crystal Clarity. And it was after we performed the Jewel in the Lotus, that play, and I was playing the part of Narayan. And so after that play at the Sunday service, Swamiji called me, and he said, Nabha said, uh, Phil, Swami's calling you. And I turned and he said, Hello, Narayan. That is your name. And he blessed me there. But I don't share this as a personal experience. I'm sharing it to illustrate this point that he, he saw the highest in us all. And it doesn't matter if we've never met Swamiji in the body. We never met Master. None of us met Master in the body, I don't think. 
we all feel his living presence within. So the more that we open up to his love, the more that he can steal in. Yeah, as Sri Yukteswar said, I, always, I love that quote in autobiography that wisdom is assimilated with the atoms, not the intellect. And that's how people digest their realization here is they, they take it in. They take it from the inside out. You know, you look at Swamiji's life, the path, discipleship, the path of inner joy. Goodness gracious, there is a lot of outward activity going on. You know, like when some of the founding members say when they came to Ananda, there was nothing here. There was just, it was a pig farm. It was dirt roads. It was gravel. You know, like when Kamaran came, when Melody came, when I came, there was paved roads. There was electricity. There was Wi-Fi. <laughs> it was a different world. I mean, but you have to look underneath that form to that inner joy, which animates all these activities, which makes Ananda so dynamic and creative and inspiring. I wanted to close with the story about the thief who became a devotee. Many of you probably know this story. It's actually partly a real story. Swami Vivekananda meant a monk yogi in India. So I'm going to semi-embellish the story here. But the story goes that there was a thief, and he was outside a temple. And it was a very ornate temple with a lot of gold all over and relics and this sort of thing. And he was really feasted his eyes on everything there. And he tried to, you know, get in and steal. But there was this one uh, saint there, uh, the saint of the temple, Swami, let's call him Swami uh, Pranaba for right now. So Swami Pranaba was the, the saint there at the temple, this realized master, and he couldn't find a way in. And then finally one night he, the thief snuck in and he took all, as much gold as he possibly could, he threw it on this beautiful ornate rug right in front of the altar. He rolled the rug up, pulled it over his shoulder, and he just started running as fast as he could from the temple. And from behind him, he heard someone running after him. So he ran as fast, as fast as he could. And then finally, uh, St. Pranabha caught up with him and said, here, my friend, my friend, wait, wait. And, and the thief got down on his knees and said, please, please, no, 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 please, don't throw me in jail. I, please, please, do not. He said, no, no, my friend, I, I have come. You forgot some of the gold utensils and some of the the gold singing bowls and some of this gold here i want to give it to you and this thief was on his knees and he said here i have come to steal from you and today you have stolen my heart you have been a thief of my heart will you make me your disciple let that all be our prayer the master steal into our heart of hearts. God bless you. We're uh, continuing in this observation of the discipleship as a path to happiness. And of course, we think of, as we alluded to briefly, the point where the true seeker realizes, I have walked too often with my own strength uh, too seldom with thine. And we enlist in this 
path of discipleship, the help of the guru. And Swami Kriyananda, I believe, uh, is the disciple of any master that I've ever encountered who has given us the most lucid and complete explanation of what discipleship is. We used to refer to the path or the new path as a handbook of discipleship. And when you read it, read it with the eye that every story in there and every aspect of it is some attitude, as we talked about yesterday, or some technique that will help the disciple move closer to self-realization and move closer to the guru. This is, in fact, what we're trying to do. And it's what Kriyananda excelled at in a divine way. He, from the beginning of Ananda, told us repeatedly that God is the doer, that this movement will succeed if we tune in to the power of the guru, in our case, Paramahansa Yogananda, but in the disciples' case, whatever guru the disciples following. And Swamiji repeatedly told us over and over again, draw on master, attune to master, let master's power do this. It will work. We will succeed if we tune in to the guru over and over again. Now, I don't know if everyone had this experience, but in the back of my mind, I saw that in fact, Master was blessing us every day at Ananda. Everything was happening by his grace. And I saw that up to the fire, after the fire, the school, all the things that happened in the 70s. You could feel Master's grace. But in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, it's because Swami's on our team. That's why Master's helping us. He's not really helping us because we're trying to tune in. We're help- he's helping us because Swamiji's on our side. And if we just stay close with him, if we just tune in to Master with Swamiji, this is going to work. Swamiji would not let us go there. Swamiji said, God is the doer. And each of us, as individual disciples, must contact the guru and must feel his power and let the power flow through us. And bit by bit, as Ananda grew, and as we did more things, you know, when we first came here, like Narayan said, we were, a lot of us were just hoping to live in a teepee and meditate on God and chant the Maha Mantra and serve and have a guest facility so other people could come. That's enough. That's all we want to do. And Swamiji was not into that. He was a lot bigger than that. Why? Because Ananda was never Kriyananda's idea. It was always Master's idea. Kriyananda put his whole consciousness into discipleship from the first day when he walked up to Hollywood Church and he said to Paramahansa Yogananda, I want to be your disciple. That was it. And for each of us, That is the point that we can come to where we realize that's the ticket out. You know, Jyotish said on Monday that we were here 
and we had a homework assignment, and we had to uh, lift our joy level, and that we would lift our joy level indefinitely. That we would basically live in a higher level of joy at the end of this week. Now, I have to tell you something. It was a trick assignment. <laughs> because infinite joy is not going to come on this plane. This earth is going to expire in a few billion years. Our bodies are going to expire in a few decades or minutes, depending <laughs> on our karma. But infinite joy is not going to be in this plane. Infinite joy, as Anandi referred to, a tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself, beyond the creation, beyond any form. Infinite joy. To lift your joy, your happiness to that level of infinity, there's only one way. You have to unite with the guru. And that's where discipleship comes in. Because Kriyananda came to be one with the guru. He didn't come to show how great he was. He came to show us how great we could be. Kriyananda said that about Christ and the masters, but I say it about Kriyananda. I say that he was the penultimate disciple, that he lived a life of discipleship. And when we asked him, Swamiji, where are we going? What's going to happen to Ananda in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? There was always a little bit of uh, kind of waffling. And it wasn't because he didn't know what he wanted he was listening all the time to what does master want. I don't know if all of you remember, some of you do. Remember the Palo Alto dedication? When we went to the Palo Alto community and we were dedicating our first urban community and we had a beautiful apartment building and Asha and David were there and Swami and Jyotish and Devi and we were all set and Swami went up to the microphone and he said, we are here by the will of Babaji. <laughs> Our jaws dropped. We thought it was, we're here by the will of Paramahansa Yogananda. But we're not. We're here by the will of Babaji, Master's Guru. We're here by the will of Krishna. We're here by the will of God. That's what we're here. And through Babaji's will, and through Lahiri, and through Yukteswar, and through Paramahansa Yogananda, we're here, and we're doing this work. But Kriyananda's consciousness... From the moment, September 12, 1948, till April 21, 2013, it dissolved. It dissolved in the Guru. Kriyananda said towards the end of his life, it's hard to tell where Kriyananda ends and Yogananda begins. That's discipleship. Bit by bit, our will dissolves. We don't have a will. I don't care what happens. What I want is God's will. I want Master's will. And so the process of Ananda became the process of tuning in to Yogananda. And it wasn't just when Kriyananda was there, because then he started, we started going places and doing things. And we went to San Francisco, and we started San Francisco House, and we went to Atherton, and we went to Italy, and we started Ananda Italy. Why? Will of Kriyananda? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> will of Yogananda, will of the guru. The disciple and the guru just come closer and closer. I don't know where Kriyananda ends and Yogananda begins. I don't know where Jyotish ends and Kriyananda begins. I don't know where Devi ends. I don't know where Asha ends. I don't know where any of us end anymore. It's all changed. It's all the guru. And as we went out, Swami would send us on a mission. Start a bookstore. Start a center. Go to India. Go to Italy. Go to Africa. Wherever. Go somewhere. And let the guru <laughs> flow through you. Start a bookstore. So those, those kids in the teepees were running bookstores and fighting lawsuits and getting lawyers. And we had a, we had a copyright lawyer, Rob Christopher. And the guru worked through him because we asked the guru, can I attune to you? Can you be my life? Thou art my life. Thou art my love. Thou art everything, master. Flow through me. That was Kriyananda's prayer. Where did that music come from last night? A great composer? <laughs> no. <laughs> it came from master. And he was here last night. Swamiji was with us. He loved that music. He played beautifully. You sang beautifully. You sang from your hearts. That's all he wanted. He wanted you to live in the heart like Yogananda did. Prem avatar. Incarnation of love. That's the game. And that was Kriyananda's life. It was discipleship. He didn't have a will. He didn't have a plan. He had a guru. And he wanted to be a disciple. He wanted to be the perfect disciple. And so he gave us these teachings and these lessons and the new path and all these books and this music. And he explained how the music came and why we were doing these businesses and what was the karma that we were working out. And last night, Ramesh and Bhagavati took the little secrets and the prayers and the music that was the antidote for the steps along the path to liberation. And they shared that, that Swamiji gave us. And the more you hear about Kriyananda, you realize he was brilliant. He was a genius. And so the thought creeps into some of the disciples' minds, such as my humble lotus self, that, well, the reason that he's so evolved is because he's, he's a genius. He writes music. He's written 160 books. I haven't written any books. I can't write music. What was his response to that? Tune into the guru. God watches the heart. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about how famous you are. It's not about how many books you've written. Swami Kriyananda once uh, evening in Satsang in Sacramento, he said, this was, oh gosh, it was probably in the late 90s. He said, and this is the way he said it. I'm just going to tell you what he said. He said, you know, when I get to the pearly gates, and uh, who said the pearly gates? Gabriel? I think. Peter? Okay. Peter. Uh, <laughs> so he said, when I get to the pearly gates and St. Peter's there, he's not going to ask me how many books I wrote or how many communities I founded or how much music I wrote. He's going to ask me one thing. How much did I love? That's the measure. The disciple loves the guru. And this disciple evaporates. The guru an attunement with the guru. And Swami said, I try to tune every thought, every action, every feeling, every direction to master, 
to the guru. And it works. It tunes us to the source. And if you are a disciple for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and you're at the point in your life where those of us who have been doing this since we were kids are, a realization comes to you. We haven't done anything. Master's done everything. Palo Alto community and the Seattle Mondeer and the farm in Half Moon Bay and the farm here and the village and the expanding light and Earth Song and Mountain Song and, and there's thousands of other chapters and on to India and on to Italy. We didn't do anything. <laughs> I can just see my resume. Last 40 years, nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But it's beautiful because you realize that you asked Master to do it and he did it. And all you have to do is get out of the way. Stop getting interference to that light. Just let the light flow through you. And it's amazing. It's magical. I'll tell you a story from the Srimad Bhagavatam. This is somewhere around 3,500 years ago, a scripture. And it's the story of Brahma and Krishna. And Krishna is in Brindaban. He's got the boys and they're taking care of the cows. And Brahma's looking down. Brahma's the creator of the universe. And he looks and he notices that this Krishna is drawing a lot of attention. And he's, because all the boys love him and all the girls love him and all the parents love him and all the cows love him. And he's just, so Brahma decides, What's, what is with this? So Brahma has an idea. He takes all the gopas, all the boys, they're out with the cows, and he puts them under the Govardhan mountain. And he puts them to sleep in a deep sleep, a deep peaceful sleep. He says, let's see what Krishna does now. How's this going to work? And Krishna, of course, knows this. Krishna is Narayan. Krishna is the preserver of the universe. He's Vishnu. And he says, oh, okay, two can play at this game. <laughs> so Brahma goes about his business. And he looks down the next day, and he's expecting a little bit of a, you know, panic on the part of the parents. He looks down, and everything's going really well. All the kids are at school. They're at Living Wisdom School. <laughs> They're studying their lessons. They're doing their songs and dances, and the cows are giving more milk than usual. In fact, the children are a little better behaved than they were. Cows are giving a little bit more milk in terms of volume and butterfat. It's really good. And Brahma's he's sort of, hmm. I, so he goes to Govardhan Mountain. He looks underneath, and all the boys are asleep there, and the cows are there. He's a little puzzled. He's going back to his palace at Satyalok, and he's going in, and he gets stopped by the guard. He says, who are you? He says, I'm Brahma, creator of the universe, <laughs> your boss. He goes, uh, I'm sorry, but Brahma's already in there. I don't know who you are. You look like Brahma, but you can't be Brahma because Brahma's already in there. And he got it. Krishna was playing the part of all the boys and all the cows. And that's what we have to do. Disciples play the part that you're assigned by karma. But let the guru play the part through you. Let Krishna play through you. 
That was Kriyananda. He just played the part of a disciple. We looked to him to be our teacher, and he said, yes, I'll play that part, but I'm your brother disciple. And the guru is everything. And everything that's happened has happened by the grace of God, not by our grace. And it makes the movie so much sweeter. We're all movie actors. We're all the stars of living, finding happiness and the answer and all these things. We're all movie stars. We know this. <laughs> Play the part with love. That's what Kriyananda did. Play the part to the ultimate. I had this experience with Maria last couple, about a month ago. A year ago, Master gave us a farm in Half Moon Bay. I won't go into that story. David and Asha can tell you. But basically, Swami Kriyananda said, David and Asha get a place outside the urban area. Goodbye. Whew. He left. Three days later, left the body. David and Asha. Okay. Yes, we better do this. Not that they hadn't been looking for years, but they got this farm. This magical story happened. We don't have time for it. A whole lot of money had to be shown up, and this magical farm had to be ours, and everybody else that was bidding had to step back, and it had to be ours. And we said, Master, if it's your will, we want it. If it's not your will, we don't want it. And of course, we were rooting. Come on, Master, give us this farm! (laughs) And he said, in due time, my children, and we got the farm. So... That was a year ago, last month. So Maria and I and B-Raj and a team of expert farmers (laughs) who have never farmed in this life but are expert farmers because they tune in to the guru. So Maria and I went to the farm this couple weeks ago and there was no one there. There was no one there when we looked at it, when it was a flower farm, a deserted flower farm. And one year later we went back and we looked at it And it's a beautiful farm. And it has kale plants and cauliflower 10 inches across and tender. And it has a beautiful fence around the orchard. And it has trees. And there was no one there. Who's there? Five masters. Swami Kriyananda. Everything is happening through the grace of the Guru. And I bow to those disciples that can channel that. I bow to the singers that can sing that music and play that music. And let the guru flow through you. Let Krishna play your part. That's discipleship. And you know what happens? Just what Anandi said. A tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself. Say it over and over again. A tiny bubble of laughter, I am become the sea of mirth itself. You become the guru. You become infinitely happy. Beyond creation, I drink all creation's waves. You become joy. From joy I came, for joy I live, and sacred joy I melt again. That's discipleship. That was Kriyananda's message to us. He just wanted to dissolve. I don't know where Kriyananda ends and Yogananda begins. I don't know where you end and Kriyananda begins. I don't know where the limit of Yogananda is. There is no limit. It is infinite joy, infinite love, infinite peace, and that's who you are. That's discipleship. God bless you. In the last years of Swamiji's life, he tried again to found a center 
for Master in Los Angeles and spent many months living in the guest house of Barovi's house there. And I didn't live there, but I went down to visit him on many different occasions. And it, Swami was winding up his incarnation and many very powerful things happened in those last years. And we were sitting in the living room once and it was just Swamiji and I was there and Narayani was there. And apropos of nothing at all, I mean there was no context for it, Swamiji made the statement, and some of you have read this because I put it in the introduction to the book, uh, Love Perfected Life Divine. Swamiji just said, it's impossible to imagine that given how deeply every one of us wants to be loved, and then he added not just um, impersonally by God, but deeply, individually by another individual, He said, it's impossible to imagine that God would plant that desire with so much power in our hearts and not also plant within creation the possibility of fulfillment. And then he went on to talk about the subject of soulmates, Um, not guru-disciple, but soulmates in the way that the most uh, imaginative thought is that we are in fact only half of ourselves and that before we're finished there is actually a reunion of our other half. Isn't that what it feels like? And Swamiji went on to say that Master only ever talked about it once and he was interpreting the Bible passage what God has joined together let no man put asunder which has become a proscription um, against divorce. But Master just said, without question, this has absolutely nothing to do with human romance. And above all, it has nothing to do with sexuality or that kind of attraction. By definition, if there is that kind of physical awareness, we have a ways to go before we can experience that kind of soul union. And Swamiji rarely spoke about soulmates, but he's talked about it more often than Swamiji. It was always like this thought in the back of his mind. It was very interesting, I think, because it was relevant to him. He knew that Master had told him this was his last incarnation. When will I find God? Master said at the end of your life and all the Brigu readings and Agastya and all of those all stated that he, he wasn't coming back. And so this lingering question of union with a soulmate was sort of floating there. Was it true? Would it happen? Uh, what would it look like? Master went so far as to say that the union with your soulmate didn't have to even take place on the same planet that your soulmate might be on another planet or even another plane of existence. And there could be just that moment of contact which would put to rest the last bit of longing. Because you see, that's what the whole spiritual path is about, is that we are filled with longing. Um, Last night when Ramesha sang Divine Love Sorrows, and, uh, and yet I know my love must reach you, 
though many lives I have to wait. And he sang it so perfectly. That was always my favorite song. Whenever I had a chance to ask Swami to sing a song, I would always ask for that one. And it's a song of uh, almost unbearable longing. And it doesn't really end happily. You're just out there um, still calling. And yet somehow implied in the very intensity of the longing is the promise of a loving God that it must be fulfilled. And that's where we're all living now. We have this intense longing. And somehow, through great good karma over many incarnations, the faith has built within us that this longing is not in vain. And as um, Anandi was saying earlier, we don't really know on a certain level whether we're going forward or back. We don't know, we don't know what the goalposts look like, really. So it's very hard for us to know. But what we do know is we have this ever-increasing longing and we have this faith that God is going to give it to us, fulfill it for us, and not leave us. Um, last night as I was leaving here, this has been a time of, uh, uh, well, it's been a season of love like Ananda has hardly ever seen in terms of people finding their partners and um, setting themselves on their life path um, with that area of their life decided. Of course, I'm at the other end of that cycle. Um, Naya Swami, many years of marriage, having lived through very happily and in a very profound way that side of life. And I was here by myself last night, and I'm going up the path, and I was about fourth in line of about four or five young couples who are all holding hands, and I'm walking by myself after this um, extraordinary heart-opening experience. And, you know, God gives us experiences sometimes that are not entirely our own. He just opens a crack somehow in the universe and you feel levels of reality. And just for a moment, I wish that David was with me and I wish that we were 25 years ago and he would take my little hand and take me up the hill like that. And there was just this uh, tiny moment of alone, but not divine, but just alone. And I thought, oh my, this really never ends, does it? No matter how many years, no matter how many experiences, no matter how much bliss, and no matter how much is given to us, we are not finished till we're finished. And I, I played it for a moment, you know, which way do you go? Being a married Naya Swami is, is very different. Swamiji gives us these um, he, he launches us and he gives us a boat and he gives us an oar and he points to the stars he doesn't really give us a map in our, that we can look at like this and then we sail out and we begin to find it and this whole idea of being able to be a sannyasi but not to renounce your uh, life partner I mean, it's, it's very radical it's, it's a return to a higher age is what it really is 
but the feeling, the way I've come to articulate it to myself from when this initiation happened and before was that David and I have always stood together and moved toward God. It's been a working partnership. But now you don't pull toward each other at all. You really just pull toward God. And you're still standing next to each other, but you're just pulling toward God. And after I got to the top of the hill and all the sweethearts wandered off, (laughs) I was by myself under the stars. And the thought comes to you, you know, I am alone. Everybody's alone. Where are you? And just all of a sudden, you know, it's just there. God does not plant anything in our hearts that he doesn't also intend to fulfill. And that's what the power of discipleship is. It's really realizing that we are not alone. And whatever is happening in our hearts, God is listening. And no, it's impossible to know. Really, I I just, the longer I, I mean, I used to be so smart about so many things. (laughs) And the, the wiser you get, the dumber you become. And the more free you become of the need to know. The stage is in the festival of light. First you have to surrender to the storm and let the clouds carry you. Then you have to fly in the darkness. And that darkness is even more profound. Because that darkness is the faith that God would not plant these feelings in our hearts if he did not also intend to fulfill them. And no matter how dark and icky the part might be and how much we may think we are pushed right to the limit, you know, how, how, when, 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 when will this come? But we don't know. And yet I know my love must reach thee, though many lives... I have to wait. I asked Swami the question once, which he rejected as such a dumb question. I asked him, I was put up to it by somebody else, but I take responsibility. (laughs) How long did it take Master to get out of being a diamond? (laughs) Swami saw that as a very impractical question, like what was I going to do with that information? He said, That is a really stupid question. (laughs) I, by this time in my life, have realized, stupid or not, this is what you got, sir. I used to try to backtrack at that point and say, oh, well, it wasn't really me. I would have tried to repudiate it, but I just said, what you see is what you get, sir. I thought it was a good question. And then in his way, after he'd dismissed it, he said, all time is short compared to eternity. And, oh, many times I've thought about that. When I asked him when he was really unwell once, Swamiji, how are you feeling compared to eternity? Just fine. The body's not working so well, but compared to eternity, just fine. And that song that Ramesha sang, when you really hear those words, we just keep longing and longing and longing and longing, but we know in our hearts that it's coming. And so where could I go? When Jesus was driving all his disciples away at the end of his life because he needed the ones that were strong only 
because it was going to be so difficult for them right afterwards. Peter, he said, will you also leave me? And Peter said, Lord, where could I go? Success on the spiritual path is that question. Because often we're flying in the dark. How can I fly in this darkness, the little bird said. I don't know whether I'm going forward or backward or down or up. And we make a mess of it a lot. I've thought back over the many years and my, my, there were some really impressive moments. You know, the ones at your life review that you hope you're going to have a good chuckle over. (sighs) You're trying to have a good chuckle now because you don't really want to have to be so embarrassed when it finally comes. What you see is what you get, Lord. And this is where we are. But now we're in the darkness. We don't know. People want to say, this is my last incarnation. I prefer to think. And yet, I know my love will reach you. The many lives I have to wait. God would not have planted this desire in our hearts if he did not intend to fulfill it. I was asked, um, Kalamali asked me a question, um, an obvious question. How did you know what to do all those decades that you were here? And I answered quickly but falsely. I said, oh, I never had to decide, Swami always told me. And I left it at that, but I really didn't like that answer. And then on Saturday, this last Saturday, I was talking to the AFF group, the Ananda for the Future, and I, I, I said the same thing, and I never fixed it. I need to fix it. Swami did give us directions because, well, let me put it this way. Swamiji said, when Master was alive, he held everything in his hands. And Swami tells that the story as a disciple that when he said to Master, Oh, Master, I have some ideas for the garden, for developing the garden at Mount Washington. And Master just dismissed him like that and said, Anandamata knows my ideas for the garden. And Swami was honest enough in his autobiography to, to say he chafed at this. Can't I even decide where we put a plant? I mean, that's a natural thought. Swami was a brilliant man with endless creative ideas. Can't I even put the roses where I want them? But... He, he goes on to accept, but later he talked about it in a different way. He said, Master had to put his imprint on absolutely every aspect of this work because water never flows higher than its source. And so he couldn't allow anything out of his hands, otherwise it would be diluted so quickly. Swamiji said, I'm able to give away a little bit more, and clearly he has, but he didn't really. And one of the experiences that we've had since he's passed is this realization of how, how now that he's out of his body, how much of that energy really is dispersed and you see energy coming from everywhere. But he never let go and he hasn't let go and we never want him to let go for all the reasons that Ananta was saying. And yes, it's true, Swamiji suggested that maybe I could start traveling from Ananda village and start teaching classes. He tricked us into that one. Why don't you build a house, he said, here next to Crystal Hermitage? Well, sir, how would we ever pay for that? Oh, he said, Asha, you could go out and give classes. (laughs) I mean, he just absolutely, I was trapped. Of course, we wanted to have a house next door to his. And of course, if going out and giving classes was the price, 
then, of course, there I am. Because he lived here, and being away from him was not not easy. So he sent me place to place, sent us to Palo Alto, various things. But you see, after that, he really never did tell us what to do. Uh, in, in all the years that we've been in Palo Alto, you know, 25 years or so, he gave us two specific instructions. But he was always telling us what to do if we wanted to know. And I don't really feel that any action I ever took, and that's why I answered Kalamali like that. And I was telling her the truth, but not in the way she was actually asking the question. I, I, he always told me what to do. Because the first commitment that was made was, Oh, sir, you know, I've been clever for so long. I am so tired of my own cleverness. I have this longing to be something completely else. And that somehow that faith gets planted in your heart that if you cooperate and if you really mean it, he will make you into something else. And then after that, you're just trucking along with your own little story. Oh, this would be a good idea. That would be a good idea. But underneath it is always this overarching reality. What are we trying to do? Oh, what we're trying to do is what Swamiji is trying to do. And what is Swamiji trying to do? He's trying to serve Master. And so that's the thought that's so deep in you. I want to serve Master. I want to serve God. Too long I have just thought of myself and all the different things I could do. And I'm very happy for all the young couples in this community because it helps to really have that area of your life settled. And certainly the partnership I've had with David in my life has been absolutely key to our ability to serve Master. And that's the, that's the point. If he leaves you alone, if he gives you a beautiful family, if he makes you strong and healthy, and all of these other things, none of that matters. And what we do doesn't even really matter. But why we're doing it is everything. Because when we get to the pearly gates... Nobody will ask us anything except how much did you love? How much did you serve? And what did you serve? Did you serve yourself, your comfort, your convenience, your fears? Or did you say, Lord, this one is for you and all the ones that may come? Whatever it is, God would not plant that desire in our hearts if he did not also intend to fulfill it.
to fight.